0: You know, every generation has a defining moment. Every generation has those moments that remind us of how fragile we are and how fleeting life can be. And th- those moments not only cause us to look at each other a little bit differently, but they also cause us to consider our own mortality and where we are in the large, large screen, scheme of things. So I believe we're experiencing one of those moments right now. I believe that for generations to come, people will remember, especially the younger kids, when they canceled school and we all had to stay home and uh, there were places we couldn't go and things we couldn't do. I think we're in the middle of one of those defining moments right now. I think that in the future when somebody says coronavirus, we're all going to remember exactly the events that happened around us during this time. Now, the good news for all this is that I believe that Uh, God has prepared his church for this time. Uh, I believe that he has been working in us and among us and through us uh, for at least here at Warndon Bible Fellowship and I'm sure at other churches as well for a couple of years to prepare us for this moment. We talked about being better together for a whole year and just at the beginning of this year we went forward with, with the message of putting love in action. What does the love of Christ look like out there in, in the community? What does it look like in our homes? What does it look like in our church? So brothers and sisters, i am got to tell you, I, I have concerns for our health. I have, I, I have deep and abiding concerns over how we're going to survive all this, but at the same time, I'm excited. This is our time. This is the time that God has prepared us for. This is the time for the church to rise up and be everything that God has designed it to be. God has prepared us, and this is our time. And and I want that to be our truth for this short period that we spend with each other here. God has prepared us, and this is our time. Now, the last time we were in Luke, we were in the first half of chapter 3 John was baptizing people he's got a message of repentance and and we found out that those people that he asked were divided up into three groups and each of the three groups said what shall I do and and we found out that the answer to that was walk like Jesus Christ it's simple but it's a tough thing to do we have to strive to put aside our self-serving self-centered lives and live in a manner that treats other people as more important than ourselves that's a difficult calling. But if we're to live a life of service and sacrifice to others, and that's what we're called to do as a Church of Christ then everything else becomes secondary. All of the decisions that we make about where we live and what we do and, and what we buy and how we buy it becomes secondary to the calling that we've been given, which is to sacrifice ourselves for others. And for a time such as this, this becomes a rise to the surface and we begin to realize how important that is. So everything else is secondary to the call of the gospel. If it weren't, Once we got saved, God would just take us home. He leaves us here to be ambassadors of his love, to be agents of his grace and mercy, to be fonts of grace and, and God's love and his unconditional acceptance. So in that passage, John baptized these people, and Jesus came, and John baptized Jesus. He consecrated him for ministry according to the law, and we know that he consecrates him for ministry because of what happens next, and that's our passage for today. The sermon is, this is our time. This is part eight of God's love for everyone, our, our uh, passages in Luke. And our passage is divided up into three sections. We have the generations of Jesus in verses 23 through 28 of chapter three. We have the temptations of Jesus in chapter four, one through 13. And in 14 and 15 of chapter four, we have the initiation of Jesus. So let me read 23 through uh, 38 uh, of chapter three of Luke. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jonai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Tob the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan. The son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam. the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim. The son of Melea, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hetzron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. The son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth the son of Adam, the son of God. I'm glad I only had to do that one time. (laughs) So if we take a look in Matthew, we see that the genealogy goes back to Abraham and establishes Jesus' credentials as a Jew. Uh, So it also establishes in doing that Jesus' credentials as someone who is qualified to sit on the throne of David. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Now, and this qualifies Jesus as fully man. But there's something else going on here that we have to see as well. It also sets Jesus up to be the second Adam, here to do what the first Adam could not do. We'll talk about that. So, after the baptism and after the genealogy, I mean, the baptism is spectacular. Jesus goes into water, he comes out, the heavens open up, uh, the voice comes out. God is saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends on him like a dove. And then we have this genealogy. These are are pretty significant happenings. I mean, it's not very often that the sky opens up and God begins to speak. And there are a lot of people around to see this happen when Jesus is baptized. So, we have the credentials of the proclamation of God that this is his son we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit and then we have this recorded uh, genealogy of who he is and what he's descended from so you would think that after those two events that there would be something spectacular going on if 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 I were Jesus I would go home and sit down in my living room and just kind of soak all this up Uh, and kind of bask in in the glow of everything that happened. But Jesus is unique, and I'm certainly not Jesus. So let's take a look at what happens to him. Because the first thing that happens after all these events is the temptation occurs. And it occurs in a a most unusual way. So starting with chapter 4, verse 1 of Luke, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, notice Luke uses the word Spirit twice here. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to make us understand that uh, there's some design and purpose behind everything that's happening here. Jesus isn't going out into the wilderness Uh, to be tempted because he's done something wrong or he has to be tested. Uh, God is working in the background here and we have to deal with the fact that the spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to have a confrontation with Satan. So this isn't punishment, this isn't God's wrath, this, this is a time that has meaning and purpose. And we need to consider that about everything that God does. Because God is moving right now. I've, I've seen the postings. I've seen the videos and everything of, of people prophesying gloom and doom and saying, this is a hand of judgment uh, of God upon our society for what we have doing, and certainly there are things that we need to repent of as a people, but this is not judgment, brothers and sisters. Judgment is gonna look a whole lot worse than what we're going through right now. This is God's hand moving sovereignly through our culture, getting our attention. See, and that's what was happening with Jesus Christ right after the baptism. God takes him out into the wilderness to get our attention to show us something that we need to know. So, there's meaning and purpose behind this. We find out that Jesus is going out into the wilderness to do battle. And the way he prepares for battle is not the way you and I would prepare for battle. In verse 2 it says, and for 40 days being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those days. Now, the first thing I see here is this 40 days, this number 40. And something about God and the number 40, you know, we we see these repeating numbers from time to time, uh, 7, 12 40 uh i mean god uses this number frequently but 40 years was a period that israel wandered in the wilderness and uh, 40 lashes was the most lashes a person could receive in in punishment for having done something wrong 40 days was the period of uncleanness after birth that a woman had to go through 40 days was the duration of the flood 40 days Uh, Ezekiel had to bear the iniquity of Judah uh, for what they had done. 40 days was the length of the fast that Moses and Elijah went through. And Moses spent 40 days up on the mountain getting the terms of the covenant. So there's, there's nothing magical about the number 40, but it is significant to God. And God inspires Luke to mention this number forty here and describe what Jesus has gone through, because He wants to get our attention. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a heads up. There's something important going on here. There are patterns that have been set before here that should that should draw our attention to what's happening, so that we should we should examine this very closely to see what God wants to teach us. God is saying, "Heads up, pay attention." And when these 40 days were ended, the scripture says, he was hungry. And we don't know much about how he fasted. I have a tendency to believe that he fasted without food and water, but there were different ways to fast back then. What we do know for sure is that Jesus was hungry. And again, we draw a parallel to Adam. Adam was in paradise. Uh, Jesus is in the wilderness. Adam had everything he needed uh, he, went, he, he didn't go without anything. Jesus is, is fasting. He's, he's denied himself food. Where Adam has satisfied himself, Jesus has sacrificed himself. Jesus came to do what Adam could not do. Verse 3 it says, The devil said to him, If you're the son of God. Now, this is not a challenge for Jesus to prove he's the son of God satan was there when he got baptized so satan heard god say this is my son so this is not a, a if you're really the son of god type thing this is okay so you're the son of god we we know who you are if you're the son of god command these stones to become bread now jesus is hungry and out in the judean wilderness there are a lot of stones and there are many, many stones that are about this size, about the size of a loaf of bread. So he hits Jesus right in the middle of his weakness. You can see him standing, and go, look at those stones. Don't they look like bread? Wouldn't it be good to just be able to pick one of them up and eat it? I mean, you're the Son of God. Make us some bread. We'll have a meal. It's an incredible temptation. And we know we know that Jesus has the capability to change the stones into bread because in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana, we see Jesus turn water into wine. So Jesus has authority over the creation. He can do this if he wants to. So this is actually an attack on God's goodness on God's provision, on God's protection over His Son. And it's an encouragement for Jesus to provide for Himself. Now, a couple weeks ago, we might have thought that was pretty easy, but just think about what we're seeing happen around us. And the the urge that we have to provide for ourselves, the urge that we have to protect ourselves, the urge that we have to accumulate rolls and rolls and rolls of toilet paper in case we run out. You've seen the frenzies at the supermarkets. You've seen the empty shelves. I mean, most supermarkets you go into, all the produce is gone, all the meat's gone, all they have is leftover pieces of meat that nobody wants to buy anyway. And it's people snatching it up. I was in Walmart the other day and watching a lady trying to pick up three stacks of 42 rolls of toilet paper. That's 126 rolls of toilet paper. See, our self preservation instincts kick in when we think there's going to be a shortage, when we think we're going to be without. And this is Jesus' moment of weakness there's no food. He could very easily provide for himself. And so the question is, in the middle of this hunger, in the middle of this shortage, how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now that's out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, you realize that the entire chapter is all about depending on God alone, not depending on the things around us, not depending on, on the land that we're in, but depending totally upon God. So, Jesus is saying, no, I depend upon God. But watch this. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the bread of life. Eternal life is in Christ. It isn't in the earthly bread. And Jesus has dedicated his life, we're going to find out very shortly, to to doing God's will and depending upon him and not providing for himself. Not resorting to his own resources, but trusting in God completely. Well, that didn't work. So, in verse 5, the devil took him up. Matthew, it says, took him up to a mountain. Uh, the indication here is he's taken up to a high place. Um, we're not quite sure whether or not this was a physical taking up, this was a vision or whatever. What we do know is that there's something spiritual happening here. There's something happening in the heavenlies. This is a battle in the heavenlies. But we also know that uh, the wilderness is separated from Jerusalem by mountains. So Jesus is out in the wilderness, far from Jerusalem. Next thing, he's in a high place. And the indication the Jews would have heard is that he's getting closer to Jerusalem. And this is kind of important in our narrative. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, we know that Satan has authority over these things. It's not sovereign authority like God has. He has the only authority Satan has is what God has given him. But if you take a look at Revelation thirteen two, we see that this is Satan's realm, and he can turn this over to Jesus. And so he offers Jesus everything. Uh, but there's a catch, and that shows up in verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan offers Jesus, who has nothing, everything. He offers him everything. Now that's, that, that, that would be a temptation that a lot of us would struggle with. Uh, but there's a condition to the offering. In order to get it, Jesus must worship Satan and violate every commandment concerning idol worship in the Bible. Every one of those commandments has to be disregarded and disobeyed. Well, Jesus answered him in verse 8. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, this is a quote from the Ten Commandments. It's a quote from 1 Samuel 7, uh, uh, verse 3. Uh, notice, every time Satan comes up with one of these temptations, Jesus responds just by reciting Scripture. That's all he does. Uh, I think it's a, an incredible model for spiritual warfare. Um, we're, we're not to crush the enemy. We're not to jump up and down on him and scream at him. We are to quote Scripture to him. And, and the idea is if Jesus will just make this compromise, he can have everything. But behind that is also the implication that he won't have to suffer. Now now you see how tempting that can be. Because we all, we all want the easy way, don't we? We all want to avoid suffering if we can. We want to do everything we can to refrain from hurting. So if Jesus doesn't have to suffer, he doesn't have to bear the cross. And he doesn't have to hang on the cross. That's what we're looking for. I mean, every easy money money scheme that comes along people want to gravitate to uh, they want the easy money they want the easy way I want to buy the lottery ticket and get millions and millions of dollars with, without doing anything uh, there are even gospels that promise us prosperity if we'll just do things this certain way and Jesus says no I'm not going to do that I'm not going to take the easy way. My Father in heaven has called me to a very hard way. And I'm going to do this in obedience to Him and out of love for those who believe in me. Praise God, Jesus chose the hard way. Without Jesus choosing the hard way, He gets saved. Everything's fine. You and I are doomed. The easy way is never the best way. So, that temptation didn't work. And we go to the third temptation, verse 9, and he took him to where? Jerusalem. Now, we've got to think about this as well. Jerusalem, that's where the throne of David is. That's where the temple is. And the temple is the, the symbol for the presence of God. So it's not just a symbol for the presence of God. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's been called to do. And the temple just outside the temple is the location of his passion. It's where he will hang on the cross. So Satan takes him there and there's all these reminders of, of everything that he's been called to do and the, the presence of God and everything and, and it says he set, Satan set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you're the son of God throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well now Satan is quoting scripture. It's a quote out of Psalm 91. And Satan wants Jesus to prove that he's faithful. He wants Jesus to prove that he trusts his Father. He doesn't have to suffer, God will rescue him. So that's right there on the surface. But even deeper, I mean, the temple and the pinnacle of the temple is a public place. There are thousands of people walking around. This is a chance for Jesus to show everybody how faithful he is. To put on a demonstration of his trust in the Father. And the real temptation is for Jesus to be self-centered, not God-centered. You know, that idea of putting our faith on display is not a bad idea. (laughs) But I think that we have to ask ourselves why we would do it. A number of years ago, probably 30, 35 years ago, there was a self-proclaimed prophet in New York City. Uh, He had all these prophecies about this and prophecies about that. And people were questioning him. And he said, okay, at noon on Sunday morning, I'm going to go down to New York Harbor and walk on water. And that will prove to you that I'm a prophet of God. So the news, I mean, the news people gather and everything. This guy walks down to the pier. He, he's got all his clothes on and everything. And he says, so this will prove to you that I am a prophet. And he steps off the pier and he sunk. <laughs> Matter of fact, the guy didn't know how to swim. They had to jump in and get him out. And you see, the, the problem was not that, that the guy was trying to prove that, that God was doing something great. It, it, the focus was on him. I am a prophet. I am going to walk on this water. See, so this temptation is subtle and nuanced. And it's designed to take the focus off our Father in heaven and put it on an individual. Jesus wasn't fallen for that. How does Jesus respond to that temptation? In verse 12, Jesus answered him and said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now that opportune time would come in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I want you to look at the nature of each of these temptations because they have some things in common. They are self-preserving. They are self-satisfying. They are self-glorifying. None of them are centered on God and his glory. None of them are centered on on what God is doing, but what Jesus is doing. All of them are centered on Jesus. That shouldn't be a bad thing, except Jesus knew better. He came for the glory of God. And he constantly was turning people who would listen to him towards their Father in heaven. So the temptations are designed to either make him independent of his Father in heaven or to manipulate God. You know, it's easy to try and manipulate God. It's easy to try and paint God into a corner. You made these promises. You said this. You said that. So I think you ought to do that over there. Ultimately, the temptations are designed to put Jesus in control and God subject to the will of Jesus instead of things being the other way around. Do we ever do that? Sure. Do we try to provide for ourselves? Do we try to turn stones into bread? Sure we do. Do we try to satisfy ourselves? Do we worship things other than God? Sure we do. Do we try to glorify ourselves? Yes, we do that and make God's work all about us. We, we all fall into these things from time to time. Jesus resisted all these things. Jesus did what Adam could not do. He, he put God's priority above everything else and look what God did for Jesus this is the initiation into his ministry verse 14 and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught near synagogues being glorified by all Jesus goes in the power of the Holy Spirit And the teaching, in spite of the fact that there are people that really object to who he is and what he's doing, the teaching touches people and begins to change people. And he has a respect if he has nothing else. So, here we are. We saw the generations. We we, we saw the temptation. We saw the initiation of Christ. But, But watch this. The temptations come immediately after Jesus is baptized and called the Son of God by God himself. We're all vulnerable to temptation, brothers and sisters, and, and I think uh, we're, uh, this, this passage shows us that we are most vulnerable in two specific instances in our life. Number one, when we've had a great victory. We have a tendency to say to ourselves, well, I owe something to myself. I've done this great thing. But the other time that we were most vulnerable is when we've had a defeat. It's easy when everything has gone against us to sit down and say, Well, I owe this to myself. The nature of all three temptations is for Jesus to be self sufficient, to be independent, to be self satisfying. And he resisted. Now, these temptations are strong. They, they can draw us in. They can cause us to justify our actions. But the good news is that Jesus resisted it, and we can resist it too. We don't have to fight the same battle that he fought. He's in us. He's working in us and through us. And all we have to do is listen to that, that still voice of the Spirit moving inside us. He fought this fight so that we don't have to fight it. When we talk about victory in Jesus, this is what the scriptures are talking about our victory, not over our circumstances or the people around us, but our victory over our own hearts and our own natures. Jesus fought the battle so that we wouldn't have to. Do it. The only thing we have to fight is ourselves. Do you see how this lesson pertains to this time? It would be so easy for us to be overcome by fear. It would be so easy for us to be overcome by a sense of self-preservation. It would be so easy for us to drop the high and holy calling we have to be agents of the gospel and isolate ourselves in our house and just stay away from everybody and everything. I'm not saying we should be irresponsible. I'm not saying that we should be out there mixing it up. But I am saying that God has given us this time. We're taking appropriate measures here. We have streaming services like this, 11 o'clock on Sundays. We're still working out some uh, some of the catches and glitches that we run into. The church is closed. It's closed for the entire week. We're asking our connect groups to meet online uh, we've already had a number of virtual meetings uh, within the staff and the elders and the leaders we've divided the entire church up made up a call list and uh, everybody that attends everybody that's a member uh, is on that call list and each member of our leadership the elders the deacons the ministry heads and some volunteers have come forth to help us with that we each have five or six people that we're made a commitment to call every week just to see how they're doing and see if there are any prayer requests we're doing that We've had to rely on online giving more than we ever had before, and uh, for people to mail their checks in. Uh, unfortunately, the, the church building and the maintenance of the building and the, our expenses uh, have immunity to the virus, so they still function. We created last night a private Facebook group, uh, Facebook group for prayer requests and nukes. Uh, it was suggested that you know, we might be able to share on that not just our prayer requests, but but events around the town. Hey, you know, over here, this is available and over here we can find that. Uh, So that's up and running. When you get the invitation, join it and come in and join us in prayer and and fellowship. Uh, We're looking for meetings and we're also examining other opportunities to teach and share online. So uh, it's going to be important to read your Monday minutes and your Friday forecasts as they come out. Those will move to being a a resource for resources and current news. So check your email daily. Uh, I mean, this is a fluid situation. We're making plans but we've learned that we have to be able to be very flexible within those plans and change them at a moment's notice. And we're working on something really big that we hope to be able to share with you by the end of the week, news about how we can effectively reach deep into the community and be ministers of the gospel. We're excited about it. Uh, We'll have more news to share with you in the next couple days. But here's what I want you, here's what I want you to remember. God has prepared us. This is our time. God has made us for this time. So, he's made us to do two things. And, and the way we're going to walk this out is in two ways. Number one, uh, we're going to care for each other. John chapter 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love me and love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love loved one in another, we're, we're, we're going to care for each other. How are we going to do that? Well, we can't really come into contact with each other, but we can talk to each other. We can pray for each other. Uh, we can share things with each other. We can, we can take an active part in others' lives. Even though we may be isolated in our homes, we can pick up the phone and say, I was just thinking about you. Is there anything I can pray for you? Is there anything you need? Can I run an errand for you? We have a number of people that are already doing these things. And let me tell you something. They're an incredible blessing for some of the older folks Uh, Some of the people that are in the target groups, those people who have weak immune systems, being able to to go to them and say, can I go to the supermarket for you? Is there anything I can bring over to your house so that they can stay safe? We need to be creative in, in how we can love each other through this, how we can maintain our sense of community. This is one of the ways that we'll be able to do that. So God calls us to care for each other, but he also calls us to care for those who need Jesus. Luke 10, uh, verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said then, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, how do we do that? Well, you know, we live in neighborhoods. Maybe there's some older folks in your neighborhood that you can see if you can help them. Maybe you can share something with neighbors. Uh, Maybe you have some extra toilet paper and you're going to give some to your neighbor. What a time we're in. Isn't it incredible? Maybe we can prepare meals for each other. Maybe we can share uh, shelf-safe food with each other. We need to be creative at this, but God has opened the doors. God has, has opened the windows of heaven, has poured out blessings upon us, and now it's our opportunity to share those blessings with the people around us. And yes, we have to be cautious We have to be responsible. I saw the videos of the kids down in Daytona on on spring break, and I'm sorry that spring break is ruined for them, uh, but that sense of I'm going to go have my good time, I'm not sick, does not take into account the importance of the people around them because they're about to bring everything they had in Daytona home. So we have to be practical. We have to be responsible. We don't want to spread this any more than it's already spreading. But within those parameters, we have to learn to love each other and to love those who need Jesus. This is our time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the explicit nature of your word. We thank you for this story of temptation uh, that comes to us at a time when we might be tempted to preserve ourselves, Lord. Deliver us from that. But Lord, we pray you give us discernment and wisdom in how we can walk this out without hurting other people. Lord, we pray that the creativity of the Holy Spirit would flow to us and through us, Father, and that you would just prompt us with ways that we can love people in the church and people outside the church, that we might be the demonstrators of your presence in our lives. And we thank you for the victory that we have over Satan. The victory over fear. The victory over the temptation to be self-glorified. The victory over the temptation to be self-preserved, Father. We pray that we would walk in your peace and experience your joy and be a fount, Father, of happiness and peacefulness in a world that desperately needs it in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.